Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another EGO's MRCI podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan, and today I have a very special guest here with us today. His name is Kip Coddington, and he is currently at the University of Wyoming. Hi, Kip. How are you doing? I'm well, Dr. Kernan, and it's a privilege to be here. And just before we begin, a shout out to the EGO's podcast. You're doing important work. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for that. It's it's great to see you again. So to get started today, um, could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So perhaps share with us your current title, a little bit about your career background, and then any sort of uh, career goals that you have or passions. Will do. And so and so I'm a senior advisor at the School of Energy Resources at the University of Wyoming here in Laramie. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have spent my life trying to help fossil fuel companies transition into a low carbon environment. So I'm a lawyer. Um, Currently, I'm a non-practicing lawyer. But I spent my life in, in large law firms, actually even spent a period of time in London, but um, I, I came to Wyoming, and maybe this is pathetic, but it was at the end of, towards the end of my career, I wanted to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I thought Wyoming, and I, I do believe that Wyoming is where uh, low carbon technologies, it's one of the jurisdictions where, where this is gonna take hold. And so I have a deep passion for providing hope and opportunity for those who were early and mid-career in the in the geosciences as to the amazing opportunities that that, that await them. Mm-hmm. And again, I was never smart enough to be a geoscientist. I'm not a geoscientist, but I have the privilege to spending a lot of my time as a lawyer with geoscientists. So I think the future is very bright for those in this discipline. Mm-hmm. And so again, I just have the greatest admiration for this podcast because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of the piper you're helping to lead uh, early and mid-career scientists into the future and as a energy focused lawyer i at the end of my career i would love to help facilitate that transition to the extent i can Mm -hmm. thank you so much for that we really appreciate it we're we're working hard yeah to help people and push move forward with our energy transition so to go back to you, Kip, at what point in your career did you decide to work under the CCUS umbrella? And was this a strategic career plan or is it something that just sort of happened? So that's a very astute question. And I would like to say it was part of a grand plan, but likely it was probably um, seated in uh, desperation by a young lawyer who was trying to find a career. Mm. And so for me, I was an, an early career environmental lawyer working in Washington, DC, DC. This was probably 25 years ago. Okay. And this was shortly after the Kyoto protocol was, was enacted. Mm -hmm. And I consider myself to be a scientist. Again, I'm just a chemical engineer and lawyer, but, uh, to the extent I have an idol, it's Richard Feynman. So I, I have a deep appreciation for the scientific method and scientists. I love science. 
And so as a, law, a young lawyer, I'm trying to find my career. And then I found, I found myself in Midland, Michigan, of all places. This was, again, probably 25 years ago. Um, and there were these oil and gas companies that were injecting CO2 into the subsurface for part of this process called CO2 enhanced oil recovery. And for me, it was almost a religious experience. I was here as a young lawyer on the cusp of the Kyoto Protocol. I saw these companies taking CO2 into the ground as part of a business. And I thought, wow, this is this is Adam Smith's answer to the Kyoto Protocol. Mm -hmm. And so as part of trying to build a legal career, I thought, wow, you know, it's got to be, there has to be a decent future for people that are trying to put CO2 into the ground. And lo and behold, that has turned out to be correct, but it was not based upon any great uh, strategic insight. I'm, I was just a young a young lawyer trying to find my place in the world. Uh, but I think that offers hope for other young mm -hmm. young professionals. But But for me, my career transition happened 25 years ago, watching a CO2 injection operation in Midland, Texas. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's really inspiring. Thank you for sharing that with us. So as a geoscientist myself, I am less familiar with the permitting and the regulation side of CCUS. Could you walk me and our audience through the key milestones in U.S. history of CCUS per permitting and regulation? I know you had mentioned the Kyoto Protocol as a starting point. How did uh, legislation change from there? Yes, and again, that's a very astute question. And again, I'm just I'm everyone operates in their own silo, so I'll, I'll give my views based upon my own silo. Sure. And so, you know, so after the the Kyoto Protocol was was enacted. There was there was a, a flurry of activity in the United States, and here again, I'm providing just perspectives um, as as a U.S. based lawyer. I can't speak to any other jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But in about uh, 2008, 2009, after President Obama was elected, it was perceived at that time that the U.S. would enact large-scale CO2 management laws and, and regulations. It was at the same time that the so-called Waxman-Markey bill was, was debated in Congress, and everyone thought federally in the United States there was going to be federal cap-and-trade. And so, yeah, at that time, what happened was those Kyoto Protocol commitments morphed into a discussion federally in the United States about how federally the United States was going to deal with CO2 emissions. And at the same time, then, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a seminal decision called Massachusetts versus EPA, which was enacted in 2007, mm -hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court said that... Um, that uh, greenhouse gases collectively were air pollutants under the Federal Clean Air Act and, and thus subject to regulation by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And so for the past 15 years federally in the United States, greenhouse gas emissions have either been uh, directly 
regulated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency or or subject to regulation. And so, yeah, so in 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 the in the United States, there was this tra transition from the Kyoto Protocol to a legal structure under federal law that granted authority to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. That structure uh, still exists today, and you know, I think that's 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 an important driver. It's not the only driver, but it's an important driver. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that that with us. Um, that's great. I, if a company would like to transform an existing oil field into one that captures carbon, how would they approach this from a permitting and regulation standpoint? So what are some of the key steps that they would need to take in order to do that? I, I stand in um, some uh, humble position with respect to, to the geoscientists. And I'm quite certain that your audience and you in particular are, are quite savvy on these policy issues. But yes, you've asked, so if you were an oil and gas company and you're trying to take advantage of or participate in the energy transition with respect to sticking CO2 in the ground, mm -hmm. what could you do? What could you do for, from a policy perspective? And so actually, so he, here's, here's the chronology of the regulation of CO2 in the ground uh, in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. So in December 2010, 12 years ago now, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency finalized the CO2 injection rules uh, under, this, under the Underground Injection Control Program of the Federal U.S. Safe Drinking Water Act. Mm -hmm. And again, those regulations were issued 12 years ago. And those are the so-called class six CO2 injection regulations. And there's only two states that have primacy for those regulations. One is North Dakota. The other is here in the great state of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. But for, for oil and gas operations, what, what those regulations provide is that you can inject CO2 for, for enhanced oil recovery purposes in an operating oil and gas operation and still get legal credit under the U.S. Clean Air Act as engaging in a sequestration operation. Mm -hmm. And so I will repeat again, under federal law in the United States, you can inject carbon dioxide in an enhanced oil recovery operation under the underground injection control program and you can actually uh, do that do those injections under a class two well mm -hmm. which is the well uh, class used for um, co2 injection for oil and gas operations and you know as long as you comply with you know this and that that legally counts as a sequestration opportunity and, and let me just continue. That's actually is not only federal law, it is state law. Mm -hmm. And so sitting here in Wyoming, we're very cognizant of what's going on to the west of us to include the state of California. And the state of California is obviously and appropriately a low carbon focused state. 
but even in the state of California, if you are injecting CO2 for enhanced oil recovery mm -hmm. and complying with the regulations, and those regulations are not trivial, so I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this mm -hmm. stuff, that activity qualifies for uh, carbon sequestration purposes, even in in the state of even in the state of California. So to conclude, there's just ample opportunities for uh, the traditional oil and gas companies to participate in the energy transition because even sticking CO2 into an existing oil and gas production opportunity, if you comply with all the details, again, I'm not being Pollyannish, that qualifies legally as a sequestration activity. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And are there um, currently tax incentives for doing that on top of everything? There absolutely are. And actually, so so from a project finance uh, opportunity, and again, we're doing a lot of projects in Wyoming, including many of which are funded under Department of Energy grants. So it's called revenue stacking. Mm -hmm. And so one of the primary tax incentives for uh, uh, the geologic sequestration of carbon dioxide is the so-called section, the federal section 45Q tax credit for carbon, oxi uh, carbon oxide sequestration. And that, that, that 45Q tax credit provides a, a per ton incentive uh, based upon the nature of the geologic activity, whether you're injecting it into EOR or whether you're injecting it for uh, saline storage. And uh, my personal view, you know, again, I'm in my own silo. My personal view is that that Section 45Q tax credit is driving a significant amount of commercial activity in the United States, mm -hmm. and further, there are pending there are pending amendments to that Section 45Q tax credit under the so-called Build Back Better Act. Yeah, um, you know that looks like it's stalled in the Senate, but it's you know it's it, it's it still it still could emerge. But there are, are additional enhancements to that 45Q tax credit that could provide additional incentives. So for example, under current that current federal sector 45Q credit, if you're sticking CO2 in the ground in the CO2 reservoir, you're eligible subject to conditions up to 55, up to $50 a ton for mm -hmm. CO2 injected. Mm -hmm. Under the pending amendments to 45Q, that could go to $85 a ton. And again, subject to conditions, you'd have to meet some union requirements, labor requirements. Um, but it's it's interesting with CO2 capture requirements for um, with CO2 capture costs for some sources hovering around forty forty five dollars a ton. If you've got a CO2 capture incentive uh, incentive north of forty dollars, then potentially depending upon the project and the mm -hmm. technology, you are in in the money. Mm -hmm. And so forty five Q is a significant driver. I will also say the other major driver is the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program. Mm -hmm. Under the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program, if you are if you are 
uh, producing a low carbon fuel that is imported into California. Under that low carbon fuel standard program, it's offset mechanisms, you may be eligible for an additional $200 a ton. And um, even if you're not uh, producing low carbon fuels for import into California, an example of which will be direct air capture. If you're doing a direct air capture project uh, under, you know, in the United States, um, you're eligible for offset credits under the California low carbon fuel standard program. Mm -hmm. And so it, to conclude, um, I think these uh, carbon capture and storage credits, both federally and at the state level, enjoy broad bipartisan support. Um, they provide a non-trivial upside to carbon capture and storage projects, and they are uh, driving a lot of interest in these projects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Is there a reason not to add carbon capture operations to an existing oil field? And so I would say, so th there are general answers and project specific answers. So the, the, the general answer is no, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of scientific data, again, thanks to the geoscience, the geoscience community that has you know documented in peer review literature why injecting CO2 during enhanced oil recovery results in a life cycle analysis greenhouse gas basis, a, a, a net reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. um, but the the economics of CO2 EOR are complicated. Mm -hmm. And so for CO2 EOR you have to you make a lot of investments up front. Mm -hmm. It could be hundreds of millions of dollars in um, CO2 capture equipment, um, injection wells, a, a CO2 recycle facility, and then uh, with the goal of recouping that investment over a period of, of, of years or, or decades. And so I would just, uh, I would just say that this is not an, an, an area where um, sound bites are appropriate. I, I think all these issues are project specific, field specific, commercial specific, uh, and th they're driven by a lot of um, economics and geoscientist uh, input. And so, yeah, I think there's both opportunities and uncertainties and Anybody who's working in an area of uncertainty knows that creates job opportunities. And so as a geoscientist, I would say, yes, it's, it's, it's a bright future. There'll be a lot of unknowns here, project specific economics and scientists that'll be brought to bear. And again, I'm, uncertainty is a great driver for for employment because people investors facing uncertainty hire experts and mm -hmm. geoscientists are experts so yeah it's it's an interesting time going forward mm -hmm. absolutely is there anything else that you would like to add or tell our audience privilege to be on this pod, podcast and again dr kernan a, a, a shout out to you 
there's a handful of people that are trying to um, influence the energy transition, and by which I mean uh, drive and and provide guidance mm -hmm. for young career professionals. And so I think that this EGO podcast is is really important. I'd like to thank you for the job you're doing. And again, if, if you're a geoscientist, you need to understand the energy transition is is going to depend on you, not only for oil and gas, not only for geologic sequestration in um, saline reservoirs, but also for uh, technologies and commodities like critical minerals and, mm -hmm. and rare earth elements. So the future is going to depend upon those who understand the subsurface. So Dr. Kernan, your audience should have great hope. And again, mm -hmm. thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I know that I, I've talked to a lot of young, early career, mid-career professionals, and it's just the energy transition provides this big like question mark. You know, it's like, well, what exact direction is it going to sort of take off? people trying to come up with like a crystal ball and just to provide comfort mostly, I think. And I just, I, I want to do everything I can to, to help that process. People sort of understand what's going on around them because it, it just seems um, like politics drive a lot of it and things can change really quickly as we're going through, you know, what we're going through right now. So yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. And again, as a Richard Feynman aficionado, aficionado, that you know, I have great confidence in the future for people who understand science and the mm -hmm. scientific method. So yeah, your <laughs> audience should have great confidence going forward. And thank you for the role you're playing, Dr. Cronin. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. You as well. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.